Um, so unions can have a, a friction effect on the ability of a corporation to do well, where a guild tends to lubricate the way that businesses do business. They somehow add to it. The Chamber of Commerce, in effect, is a guild. It's a group of people that have gotten together to pool their resources for a common cause. Well, so is a union. The common cause is the difference, though. One is saying, let's make businesses better, and one is saying, let's make the workplace better for the workers. There's similarities. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Together, we are bald. And bearded. Yes, we are bearded as well. And to get, today, we will be pounding the airwaves with talk about finance and the economy, because we know how much everyone loves that. <clears throat> it is a... Um, Unanimously referred to as the dreary science, as if it's dismal, a science. The dismal, dismal science. Dismal science. Well, I've right. heard it called the dreary science by quite a lot of people as well. So the dismal yeah. science, the dreary science, and that is all implicit on the concept that it is a science, which is possibly not true. There's not a lot of hypotheses in economics. And the method of science is to question everything. Economists rarely question themselves, though. So you may hear us questioning ourselves in the most uni unique form of economics conversation ever. How am I doing today? Quite well, thank you. See, I just questioned myself. And they're quite famous for having multiple hands because they would commonly say to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, on the other hand, and he said what he needed is some economists, one-armed economists. Yes. One-armed economists would take care of everything, except that you'll never find a one-armed economist. Uh, really? I think I think the uh, James Bond movie Octopussy was about an economist. Mm, okay. Maybe. But we have other disclosures, as if you didn't gather from that, we are weird. First disclosure. We are, well, second, third. We've told you we were bald and bearded. We like puns. We're very strange in that manner. We're going to talk about the economy. This is called the Personal Wealth Coach. It's not just the name of this program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm that gives fiduciary investment advice, which the people from that firm that talk on this program can't give investment advice on the air. Why? Because it's not private. Why else? Be because we don't know everybody that's listening. Maybe. Maybe nobody's listening. Um, just because the SEC is the place where the firm is registered doesn't mean that the SEC particularly enjoys our presence in any way. They may believe that we have body odor and inappropriate body hair. Uh, they don't tell us that part. That's not their job. It's not their job to give us approval. So they haven't. Please don't think that they have. Why am I being so down on ourselves about approval from a government agency? Because some people say or imply that just because they're registered with the government in some way, it gives them, I don't know, some type of greater knowledge. Anybody who's ever registered with the IRS could argue that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, being registered to pay your taxes does not imply that the U.S. government particularly appreciates you. Um, that's not their job. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, it's not advice, 
but we're registered to give. What are we doing if we can't give advice on the air? Well, we're giving education. And hopefully it will allow you to understand the world of finance a bit better to make slightly better choices in your own personal finance, whether that's investment or how you structure the payment on your house and what type of debt you have on your airplanes or automobiles or lawnmowers, whatever that may be, tractors. Um, We're hopefully going to fill in some gaps in your knowledge. We're going to talk about the big wide world and we get our information from a lot of places. Do you want to tell them about the places we get the information? The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of information we present on this radio program. We, however, do absolutely warranty and guarantee that any information that we don't give was ungiven by us. Therefore, something. Um, uh, we yeah. don't pay for this radio program. Weird, I know, in the world of paid commercial programming on Saturday morning, we still don't pay for the program. We're also not getting paid. Wait a minute. Didn't I just say we were supposed to be wise in the ways of personal finance? And here we've been doing 26 years of free Saturday mornings. Not free to us. Um, hopefully, hopefully, the listening audience has benefited from our mumblings and uh, meanderings and um, weird jargon as we go about trying to educate people. Hopefully. All right. So we're through the disclosures. Uh, we have a question from our most loyal questioner. Mm-hmm. Inquisitor John has, as is tradition, sent in an email. John's question this week is one that not many of our listeners will uh, say, well, I was just wondering that. Uh, but after he gives the question, you are likely to wonder it. John says, with so many layers of mezzanine debt, how is the queue prioritized for repayment when logos, loans go bad? And he's got uh, the article in question is distressed property loans send out warning. Uh, Conrad Putzier at the Wall Street Journal wrote this, and he's got things circled throughout it. Things got so crazy, said Kenneth Chen, a partner at law firm Kramer, Levine, Naftalis, and Frankel. I did a deal where there were six levels of mezzanine debt. Um, Later on, he's got another section circled, uh, which was taken over by uh, by lenders following the crash, had 11 layers of mezzanine debt, according to the property's bond prospectus. Many loans across the country were wiped out when the market turned. Okay, so that was my great dramatic attempt to make something a lot of people would find boring, not so boring. And he says, how is this stuff queued? How does it go? What does it mean? What is mezzanine debt, folks? Well, first, let's talk about the word mezzanine. You may or may not have heard this word as you go to a theater. This isn't a theater like you go to, but a theater. A theater will have a mezzanine. Well, what is mezzanine? Mezzanine means middle. Um, it's uh, the, I'll, I'll give you the, um, the etymology of the word. Uh, mezzanine is a low story between two higher ones in a building. From the French word, mezzanine, which is why the theater. Excuse my French there. Um, but it's probably, it's given its roots to the old Latin um, from uh, medianus, uh, which, by the way, the last part of that word is anus. I just thought, had to throw that out there because it's important somehow. 
because obviously I'm still a child in my own brain. Um, but it's probably from the word from the Greek, mesos. It means middle, right in the middle. Okay. What does that have to do with debt? Why do we use a silly French word for a balcony seat between two layers at a theater, usually, or very low rent area between two floors in a building? Um, yeah. Well, it's because in a normal situation, if you're a business or an individual, it doesn't matter, and you have debt and you have assets, and for some reason you can't pay the payments on your debt, the debt, the people that issued the debt, generally, sometimes, most of the time, have some recourse. If you can't pay your car payment, well, this is a debt that they can come and take your car for, usually. There's some collateral involved. Um, without the collateral, the loan interest rate goes up. This is why credit card loans are high, because there's no collateral on that stuff. If, if you get a house, your interest rate should be significantly less than a credit card. Why? Well, because they can come and take the house if you don't pay it. So there's collateralized loans and there's non-collateralized loans. There's a lot of ways you can structure loans. But the bottom line is that you are the owner of your own lifestyle. Say you have debt. In the event of you un being unable to pay the debt, your bank has rupted. You have uh, broken the walls of, of the river or your bank vault cracked open and leaked all the money somewhere. Uh, you are bankrupt. Well, the people that you owe debt to have to get in line to be paid. You are at the last in the line. You, you don't get to say, I get the lion's share of my assets after bankruptcy. The, uh, the debt that was given to you by other people with the thought that you would pay them back has to be paid as a priority. So they come before you in the line. But the different kinds of debt have different places in the line. Credit cards definitely are behind the mortgage. The mortgage has first dibs on stuff. And in a business, you have the same sort of deal. Only it's for all kinds of other silly stuff that now we are leaving the realms of normal households where you have collateral from a car and so on. Now you have debt that Say you want to buy a company. You, you own a company and you want to buy that company over there. But you don't have enough money. See, it's $100 million to buy that, that other business that does sort of what you've been competing with them for years. If you get them, you get all of their business. It's $100 million. You only have $40 million of excess cash beyond what you need to just continue doing business. You need $60 million. And you go to the banks and the banks say, sure, we'll loan you that money at 14%. And you go, whoa, whoa, <laughs> no, that's a little high. I'm not, I'm not willing to destroy myself in the process. How about this? You give me the loan and um, you get the right to convert this loan to shares maybe um, at some point. If you like the share price, you can convert it at this price. If our company gets to this price, you convert it, and you own part of the company now. You, I mean, that's a pretty good deal. This is called mezzanine debt, because normal debt says we are priority in the event of, uh, of if you gave us a bond, which is debt from a corporation, um, if you gave us that bond, we get paid before the shareholders do. Shareholders may not get anything if you go away. But we're going to get something first because we gave you a loan and you agreed to pay us. 
just ask the folks at formerly Twitter, now X, if they're allowed to just disregard debts that they signed up for. No, they've got a lot of lawsuits coming up because they tried to ignore debt. Debt comes before ownership as far as the line goes. But generally speaking, the higher the interest rate on the debt, the farther back in the line you have to go among the debt holders before you get paid. Why? Because the higher the interest rate usually means you've got less collateral, you don't have any of these other things. So if the bank says, I'll give you a loan, here's $80 million to go buy that other corporation, that'll be 14%. Well, now you've got to start negotiating that price down. Say, well, we'll convert this over to stock at some point. Well, that tends to start lowering the interest rate. But as soon as that happens, they start becoming more like an owner and less like normal debt, if you follow that. They, they might be able to get some ownership out of this, which means that they are not the same level of debt holder as somebody that just said, I made you a loan and you agreed to pay it. I'm not involved your, with your business at all. You said you would pay me back. Versus somebody that says, here, I'll give you a loan, and I kind of want to buy part of your company with this loan. So I'll do that. Well, now you're in a different line or a different order in the queue. And mezzanine debt, by being called middle, it's in the middle between the primary debt holders and the shareholders. They're, they fall somewhere in that area. And mezzanine debt tends to be riskier in general than normal debt. Why? Well, because they had to negotiate it. They really had to work something out with the people that were giving them the loan. And, and that means that uh, it's there's some extra stuff going on. So a lot of times when people are doing a, a leveraged buyout of a company, which is a risky deal because you may lose all the people that do all of the breadwinning at that company when you buy it. So it's a higher risk level. And when you start to see a lot of them failing, um, the the article says, you know, the, the clear sign, clearest sign yet of the coming uh, commercial real estate trouble. Uh, that's the digital version of the headline that he sent. Uh, you you looked like you were pregnant with thought, sir. It's not well, Labor Day, but go ahead. You're you're really um, you're getting into a lot of detail there, and it's it's all real stuff. But my perspective is a little more simplistic. The bottom line to mezzanine debt is. It isn't standard debt. It is higher interest rate debt. And there's two ways of looking at it. One is from the people who borrow the perspective, and I think John was talking about that, the perspective of the people who borrow the money uh, mm -hmm. and, and the people who, when, when they go in, who gets paid back on this deal. Well, the mezzanine debt people are basically way at the tail end of the people who get paid back. Um, the people who loaned money on mezzanine debt did so at a higher interest rate, recognizing the risk. There's commonly, and this is an interesting thing about mezzanine debt, there's an initial loan, let's say on a property or a, a corporation makes wants to borrow money for whatever reason, and they have collateral and they make their initial loan, but then they need more money, as you said, as you mentioned regarding a house or something. And they go out to the non-standard market where the loan sharks are. And the 14% that you mentioned was not unrealistic, even in a 2% environment that we had before. And so then they the, the the loan sharks loan them the money, but they don't retain the loan. I mean, the loan goes to the company, they get their money, but the people who made the loan don't hang on to it. They sell it on the open market and they sell it for a lot of money. But the point is that if, let's just say, a pension fund or a bank or, or some organization trying to build up a bond portfolio that paid a reasonable interest rate 
during the 2% interest rate environment, would go out and buy mezzanine debt. And two things have happened to that mezzanine debt. One, since interest rates have gone up, the value, the, the market value of that loan dropped, which means the people who got it and are using it to pay interest to their shareholders or their participants, if they're in a pension or whatever, can no longer easily sell the loan. And matter of fact, they did, they take loss, and which would make them very uncomfortable. The second thing that's occurred is because interest rates went up, the folks who borrowed that money for the mezzanine debt are going to now be stressed. They were in trouble before financially, or they wouldn't have gotten the mezzanine loan. And then the fact that interest rates go up tends to slow the economy down. And as the economy slows down, their profits will probably drop off if they had any. Their revenue will probably drop off. So the risk to the mezzanine debt goes up. And the people who ultimately wind up holding the bag are the people who bought the debt. So there are organizations out there, possibly banks, although banks are very heavily regulated, more likely pension funds and maybe insurance companies that hold mezzanine debt and were able to pay higher interest rates during the uh, during the really low interest rate environment. If somebody, if you, for instance, got an annuity and they said, we'll guarantee you 4%, uh, when interest rates were 2%, that may be why they were guaranteeing you 4%. And they'll guarantee you 4% until all of a sudden they go into receivership, in which case no, you get no percent. Uh, but this is... The, this is what happens after a low interest rate environment has passed by. We go into a much higher interest rate environment. Mezzanine debt is kind of like nitroglycerin at this point. Yeah. Uh, if, if everything holds real still, it won't blow up. But the odds of things holding real still are not good at this point. Yeah. When, when we've talked over the past year and a half of the rising interest rates, the Federal Reserve raising rates and um, the structural collapse of these longer-term debts in the long-term debt market. And um, what we're talking about there affects this market, the mezzanine debt market, more drastically than the other stuff. When we talked about bank failures back in March, that was because they had long-term, very high-quality debt. Long-term, low-quality debt, like mezzanine loans, is... It's not surprising that we have a lot of failures in that area right now. And by a lot, I should, um, I should kind of preface that to say we've had commercial property loans having to do with mezzanine debt for this year, 2023. So far, it's not done yet. We still have a month and a half still to go. We've had 62 bankruptcies at the national level. We'd People hear that and they go, what? I thought you were saying this was a sign of a big problem. Well, it is because the the highest bankruptcies that we've seen, period, in that market was 2021 after the, after the pandemic's raging and it was toward the beginning of that year. We had 41. Last year, it went down to 30 and now it's up to 62. Well, these aren't massive numbers. Internally, mezzanine loans are generally given to companies that are dealing with hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. So it's a bigger deal than a normal bankruptcy in a lot of cases. Um, so when, I mean, the headline is the clearest sign yet that commercial real estate is in trouble. And then they bring up mezzanine loans, which one of the things that you can always do with debt, find the riskiest type of loans. Those are the ones that fail first. Sometimes that means there's a cascading effect where the risky ones go down and that starts to make the not so risky ones go down and so on. Uh, in this case, that's not what we're seeing. We've seen the mezzanine loans starting to, to fall pretty quick, 
But if you've noticed what happened over the past two or three weeks, you've seen interest rates on long-term U.S. Treasury debts. 10-year has come down almost half a percent in a very short period of time. Why is that? Well, it's because the Federal Reserve said, hey, we're not raising interest rates for a little while. What does that have to do with long-term debt? They're structuring how they sell their debt as well and how they buy their debt. And, and that's part of what we're seeing in these longer-term rates. And I know that's it's all smoke and mirrors. Um, it's all what's happening in the background. But when you're talking about the debt market, that's kind of how it works. Um, and I've just got a email from Colin saying, your dramatic voice. Apropos of Renfair being in town state, you have previously stated that guilds are very different from unions. How are they different? Ooh, that's an that's interesting a question. Fan, that's a actually fantastic question. Um, a guild, by its nature, is a group of tradesmen that get together in a group to help negotiate prices on their goods. So that includes, by and large, the members of the guild are owners of the tradecraft. So the guild master tends to own their own shop. And this is an old Renfair-esque concept. But guilds are based on the concept of, hey, our town is good at making glass, and we're going to market our town as a group to the rest of the world and say, Murano Glass from Venice. They had a guild. They protected the secrets of how their glass was made. Uh, they hired guards to make sure that their guild members weren't troubled by other cities' guilds. Uh, a union, on the other hand, is a group of workers that may work at those same businesses, but want to negotiate with the owners of those businesses for better pay or less hazardous duty or better sick time or less floggings or more lemonade or <laughs> whatever it is. Less floggings or more lemonade. I think that's the big one, right? <laughs> that's not usually in a union negotiation, but they need to be. Uh, they need to stipulate the number of floggings allowed at zero, just in case somebody realizes that it's not in the contract, so therefore it must be allowed. Um, so unions tend to have a downward push on the business as a whole. Uh, what does that mean? If we go back to the era pre-union in the United States, uh, we've got some, we've got a newspaper on the wall in the bathroom at the office from 1918. And on the front page, it's got these unions that are busting skulls and the, and the security forces that were hired to fight the union by the corporation that are busting skulls. And they, they're basically having bludgeon wars on the grounds of a factory. And unions were not really legal at that time. They were kind of a protection racket. Hey, we'll, we'll make sure your equipment doesn't get broken for you. Well, nobody's broken our... Well, there it went. It got broken just now by that guy over there. Why did... What? I thought you said you were going to... Well, you haven't paid your dues. Um, unions were a little bit on the organized crime level at the beginning, but they had a good cause in that corporations were paying people in not money. You just got store credit at the company. So you could go buy your food there and you could pay your rent in it because the corporation owned your house. And it was a form of indentured servitude. What does that mean? You're talking about uh, the last mezzanine debt, um, making your employees go into debt that they had to pay back with company money. 
Um, and it goes back to sharecropping, and it goes way, way, way farther back in history than that. It's a method that causes your workforce to be unable to leave should they want to and not have a voice in their own pay. Now, you come forward to today where unions are having a lot more power. Uh, UPS just had a strike and the unions got the management to agree to pay the UPS drivers $170,000 a year to buy to drive a UPS truck, which if you look at the competitiveness of the market to say what would a truck driver get or what would a, this seems like an absurd rate. And it might be, and it might actually be bad for UPS long-term because they've got to be in competition with people that don't pay their drivers $170,000 a year. Um, so unions can have a... a friction effect on the ability of a corporation to do well, where a guild tends to lubricate the way that businesses do business. They somehow add to it. The Chamber of Commerce, in effect, is a guild. It's a group of people that have gotten together to pool their resources for a common cause. Well, so is a union. The common cause is the difference, though. One is saying, let's make businesses better, and one is saying, let's make the workplace better for the workers. There's similarities. I wanted to address the last part of Colin's email. He left off with a quote, which may be just part of a signature line from his email, uh, uh, but I, I'm going to address it anyway. Or he addressed it, but you know what I'm saying about addresses and whether, do you, you know why the tomato blushed? I saw the salad dressing. It's horrible, horrible. Uh, I'm a dad. That's another disclosure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, his quote is, without spirit, the indomitable human spirit, the world ceases to be, and Sullivan, which is a very anthropomorphic view of the world. If the tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, did it actually make a sound? Well, it was not recorded in any way, so probably not. You know, it, And in the old uh, way of it didn't happen if it wasn't written down, uh, without the humans, you know, the world wouldn't exist. Maybe. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. Did you get the message from tom yes Do you, would you like okay. to, to to address that or he addressed it but you can readdress it to I the audience i could i could readdress it uh tom said great show today which means he obviously is uh, has low standards but um he said thanks for your time to share educate and entertain the masses on a weekly basis okay uh, they're he all said, catholics i try to try I, I tend to attempt to figure out the history of the crsp he said TM1. It's, yeah. it's, it, it's MIV1, I think it is. Yeah. But um, you can't find it easily. Uh, it, you have to look at the NASDAQ. Actually, if you go into Google and type CRSPMIV1, you will get the CRSP US Mid Cap Value Index. That, by the way, the CRSP, when we talk about it, it's called the Center for Research and Security Prices, and it was founded by Eugene Fama at the University of Chicago. Um, he forced his undergrad econ students, he also won a Nobel Prize in economics later, but over decades forced his undergrads to go through the library as part of their course and look at the old microfiche stuff to bring data into the digital world going back to pre-1900 United States as far as stock prices go. Um, and then later went on to say, all right, let's look at what is a total market. What is, and these are academic in nature. And as far as I know, they don't 
have investments based on what's in the index. Where is that? The S&P 500 has a bunch of folks that are trying to model it and do what's in that. But S&P Global is the name of a media organization that owns that index. Why a media organization? This is something that's been true in um, the investment world and the market world for indexes since the beginning. An index was never intended to be an investment. It was intended to create headlines. If you don't have an index, so one of the major indexes, the first major indexes were created by Dow Jones. Dow Jones were the original two uh, owners of the Wall Street Journal. They had a newsletter before the Wall Street Journal. It's really hard to do a headline if all your stocks are listed in trades and you don't have something that sums that up. If you have even 60 stocks trading on a daily basis that you're covering in the back of your newspaper, you need something on the front page to say what happened that day. And if you don't know, well, you have to figure out, well, all these stocks, what? So what they did back at Dow Jones is they found the biggest companies out there and they put them, them together. And I think this started with 12 companies and they used an abacus and they just did a very simple math average of the price movements. They started with the number 10 as the opening number for the index. And then those 12 companies, which were the biggest they could find because they had the biggest impact on the market, they figured. By the way, that index still exists. It has more stocks in it, but it's called the Dow Jones Transportation Index. The reason why it's the Transportation Index is because in the late 1800s, the biggest companies were railroad companies. So the Dow Jones Transportation Index was devised by a newsletter writer to give a headline on what happened in the market that day. An index is generally devised by the media to tell you what happened. Over time, the investors have said, oh, well, I want to invest in exactly what you're talking about. Well, that means you have to figure out how to average your prices out the same way that they do in the index, which isn't really possible. I know that's weird, but when the S&P 500, for instance, adds a company to the index or removes a company from the index, they're not buying or selling that company. They just pull it out mathematically. There's no trade cost. It just occurs. Where if you have a mutual fund or an ETF that's trying to track that, somebody has to actively buy or sell whatever just got added in there. And there's trade costs that occur. When you buy, when a company gets added to the S&P 500, it has a price increase that happens on the day that it occurs. It's typically above 10% growth in the price of the company simply by being added into a measurement tool. Because a lot of people have to buy them because they're now in the S&P 500 in order to continue to model the S&P 500. It means that the act of observing the market changes the market if your observation includes buying and selling. So Gene Fama said, well, I'm just going to measure it. And that's what CRSP is. And part of the reason why we like to use it, it also is covering a lot of things that the other major indexes don't cover well at all. One of the things, if, if I could use the S&P 493, which gets articles written about it by Bloomberg and other people who can actually pull seven stocks out of the S&P 500 and see what it looks like, we can't. Um, I'd use it. But to understand what's actually going on in the market, when the S&P 500 is so distorted by seven stocks, it's so distorted by the fact that if a stock goes into the S&P 500, it rises in value instantly simply because it's in the S&P 500 because of the, the S&P 500 index funds that have to buy that stock immediately. And when a stock goes out of the S&P 500, it immediately falls. So the major indices are distorted. So how can we get the furthest away from the S&P 500 to see what's going on on the other side of the 
basically the, the 346, I think, stocks that are in the uh, CRSP, U, U, U.S. Mid-Cap Value Index. Most of them are in the S&P 500, not all of them. So it's basically the S&P 500 has become a large growth stock index. Large companies that are growth-oriented, that are trading at price-earnings multiples that are sometimes quite scary, drive that index. So if we, and then, and, and, and of course, as I said, and Jake said, people buying into S&P 500 indices in their mutual funds and in their 401ks and pension funds, uh, treating it like it's generic stock market also distorts it. So coming to the other side of the market, let's look, mid-cap is about as small as you get still being in the S&P 500. The And the only mid-cap value index that is not a mutual fund also. Russell has a has some S&P 500, uh, Russell has some uh, mid-cap value indices or index, as an index, but it's also run as a mutual fund is in, and as ETFs. So we go to the CRSP US mid-cap value index to find out frankly, what's really going on in the real market. It's kind of the foundation on which the rest of them are built. It's not perfect. Uh, many things are not perfect. But if you look, if you've got something other than an S&P 500 index fund in your 401k or whatever, um, it, it may not have gone up much this year. And you're wondering, why do I have this, even an index fund? All right. Well, we're about out of time for this hour. Where did it go? It was just started, and now it's coming to an end. But if you it would went like, to, it went to the mountains. Time, yeah, you're right. It went to mountain time zone. They, it left here and went to Colorado, which a lot of us right. would like to do in the summer, and New Mexico. Yes. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give customized investment advice and portfolio management to people of relatively high net worth. The email address to contact is. Jake at tpwc.com or Jeff at tpwc.com. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can sign up for our newsletter there. Read our newsletter going back a long ways. It comes out every Friday. You can listen to our radio program going back a lot of years. You can go and find podcasts wherever you find podcasts. We also have a contact form on the webpage there. Uh, if you simply want to have a question answered, send us an email, jake at tpwc.com and jeff at tpwc.com. Thank you very much for listening this hour, and hopefully you'll be back next hour with more of The Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure.